While you are in the process of opening your Bible to Psalm 127, let me tell you a couple of things. There's lots of books in the Bible. Duh. 66 in all. Some of them are history. Some of them are law. Some of them are letters. Psalms is songs. What's a song? A song is simply poetry to music. Our poems rhyme. Hebrew poems typically didn't rhyme. In fact, uh, unlike a Taylor Swift album, where every song sounds the same, there's lots of different kinds of psalms. Some of them are celebration. Woohoo! God did something awesome. Some of them are dark. In fact, there's one that doesn't even have a ray of hope in it. It's, man, I'm feeling down. And I don't know what is going on. There are songs of public worship. There are songs that are a bit like a national anthem. There are songs about God's specific acts. That's specific, not pacific. And there are songs about, more generally, God and his character. And because Hebrew poetry wasn't about rhyming, it was more about patterns, uh, we see some patterns emerging in some psalms. Uh, For example, uh, some psalms have a phrase in the middle and then they have the same number of lines in front of it and behind it in the psalm. Uh, There is apparently, I didn't map it out, there is apparently a psalm that is designed to be a pyramid. It's got some lines that are the same length and then a bit longer, and then a bit longer, until you get this nice pyramid shape. Um, Clever, if you can build a pyramid and write a poem at the same time. But we have to read the Psalms for what they are. They are people talking to God. Lots of different authors. uh, Out of 150 Psalms, 100 of them uh, have a named author. Uh, And 73 of those 100 are written by David. We don't know about all of the others. Some of them are written by a guy called Asaph. Uh, We have the sons of Korah. Uh, We have a guy called Herman, a guy called Ethan. We have a psalm from Moses, and we have some from Solomon. And if we don't read the psalms for what they are, we can get ourselves in a little bit of trouble. Let me read to you from Psalm 79. Pay back to your neighbor seven times the reproach that they have hurled at you. You can see what would happen if you took that as an instruction. In fact, what it is, is the psalmist saying, I want you to take revenge, Lord. People are poking fun at you, and I want you to take revenge. I want you to set it right. That's the psalms. This psalm is 127. It's a psalm of Solomon. I only woke up to that fact after I started reading. I rang Shabu and I said, it doesn't even read like a psalm. It sounds like a proverb. And he's like, well, you know. It's a Psalm of Solomon. No, oh. <laughs> Oops. Um, so, and it's short. So read with me. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord, I'm reading it out of the Andy Ball memorized version. Uh, Unless the Lord build the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards watch in vain. In vain you work 
you get up early, you stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he gives sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring a reward from him. Blessed is the man whose quiver is, oh no, sorry, like arrows in the hands of a warrior is the children of your youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he contends with his opponents in court. Now, I, I don't know about you, I found this psalm really confusing at first. Builders are building, but God is building. Guards are watching, but God is watching. Or well, he's supposed to be watching. And unless as God is doing those things, then it's vanity. And then it talks about work, getting up early, staying up late. And I thought, oh, maybe this is a psalm about preparing sermons. Toiling for food to eat, it's all vanity. God gives sleep to those he loves. Or in another version, it says, uh, even while they sleep, God provides. And then it just starts talking about kids. They're a heritage or they're an inheritance. There's something that someone gave to you. They're a reward. They are a result of some effort. They're like arrows in the hands of a warrior. I know, Kaz, our house sometimes looks like a war zone. They won't be put to shame when they contend in court. How did we end up in litigation all of a sudden? So confusing. I just, oof. Uh, so many things going on. So... I'm going to cheat. Uh, as part of my reading, I found out that it's very possible these were actually two different psalms. And the verses 1 and 2 were a psalm, and then just verses 3 through to 5 were uh, considered a different song. Uh, and the Chris Tomlin of the Old Testament joined them together. <laughs> and so I'm going to separate them again. And we're going to focus on verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to leave kids what causes them how fun they are, all of that for a different day. So then I went back to the psalm and thought, well, what is all this about? Because this is not about builders. Uh, When those guys literally built houses, they lasted a long time. When Metricon built my house, they didn't quite take the same approach. You can ask the people who've looked at it. (laughs) And we don't have city watchmen today. That's that's language that we don't use. Well, we have police. uh, We have um, the guy who checks your Mikey card. uh, And I know all of you have never had any interactions with those people. So what is it that we are about? How can we translate these concepts and bring them back, uh, bring them forward, maybe, bring them forward into today's language? How are we going to make sense of what Solomon was writing and try and make, make some sort of uh, resonance with us about life today. So I thought, well, maybe it would be useful uh, to go and to have a look at the words. What are these words saying? What was, the, what was the word? What was the concept? What did it mean then? And then maybe I can make a connection. So out comes my Hebrew. Build. Some people think that Solomon wrote this because he was building the temple and he was kind of acknowledging that uh, 
unless it was God's temple, unless this was about God's plan, then it was all going to be a waste uh, anyway. That might be true. Uh, but this word build is in Hebrew. Ready? Bana. Can you say that? Bana. Yeah, not banana. Bana. Just bana. And it means to build or establish or create. It's the same word when God made woman in Genesis chapter 2. God banad, a woman. All right. So it's not just, you know, assemble like Makano. It's, it's creating, it's establishing, it's, it's, it's making something. Same word when Sarai says to Abram, we're not having a family. Maybe you should have a family through someone else. She, she says to him, go and banah, a family. Go and create, establish a family because it's not happening with us. Same word when Ecclesiastes, we read, there's a time for everything, there's a time to break down and there's a time to build up this word banah. It's, it's create, build, establish, make something that's going to last. Don't be like Metricon. Building was important because it was through the establishment of cities and places that these people got connection and provision and security. The city was an important thing. There was no Facebook community. It was your city, your neighbours. That was how you connected with people. As an aside, this is just, this is just for fun, Hebrew fun. Nez... N-E-S, Nez, is the word for miraculous. And if you were building a really amazing building, you would say, Bananez. Um, the city watchmen. So we've got, we've got people uh, building. Then we read the other part of this psalm. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen, or the guards, watch in vain. So who are these watchmen? Uh, to watch, here's, here's, here's my Hebrew really stepping up a notch. To watch is a word that uh, sounds like this. Shemar. You have to roll the R. R. Shemar. How am I going, Tim? Okay. <laughs> Shemar is, is different to watching TV, which is just observing with your eyes or watching the grass grow. It means to guard or to protect. It's got this kind of watching over something or someone. Same word was used when God gave Adam and Eve the garden and he said, it's yours to watch. It's yours to guard, to, to protect, to keep it. Same word when uh, God said to Jacob in his famous dream of the ladder uh, or the stairway going up to heaven, God said, I'm with you and I will protect you. I'm watching you. I'm, I'm guarding over you. Same idea. Now, cities in those days had big walls, yeah? Much better than concrete bollards. Uh, and they were a security thing. The walls of a city were a security thing. They also were a platform for the watchmen. Watchmen would stand on the walls and they would look out to the horizon and they would call out if they saw something or someone coming. And it was their job to kind of spot it early as they could, to, to call out what was happening and to establish whether it was friend or foe. And if it was foe, 
they would quickly, everyone would come inside the walls, they would shut the city down, and they would protect what they had. It was the role of the city watchmen to help protect that which they had. You didn't want to lose your city. It was your place. It was your provision, your protection. So we are banaing, we are building or establishing, and we are watching, we are shamaring. And then Solomon talks about working. I'm not going to bother you with Hebrew pronunciation. I've got to be sick of Hebrew after a while. But it says, in vain you're getting up early and you're staying up late and you're toiling for food to eat. Uh, And this word toil means hard labor. Really, really hard. It's the same word that God said. Hey, Eve, you know, now that sin is coming to the world, childbearing is going to be really hard. And you thought women had a monopoly on this concept? They don't. You're working hard, guys. Don't tell your wife that. She always works harder. Literally, it's, it's this really, really hard work. And Solomon says, you're working really hard. And some of you are like, yes, I am. You're working hard. But Solomon says, it's in vain. It's in vain unless... It's all in vain. This whole, this whole concept of being in vain... Uh, means it's worthless, it's empty. It kind of has no meaning. It doesn't last. It's useless. It's wasted. We get that same, uh, same message when we hear in Ecclesiastes, uh, which is often attributed to Solomon. We have uh, this passage in Ecclesiastes 4. There was a man who was all alone, and he had neither son nor brother. And there was no end to his toil. He also was working hard. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. Why am I depriving myself of all enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Now I know what it's like to build in vain. Any of you remember there used to be a little cottage at the back there. It was a Sunday school room for a long time. And uh, quite a few years ago, someone said, hey, we're getting rid of that thing. Uh, if anyone wants it, you can have it. So in my naivety, uh, I followed my wife's leading and we said, yeah, we'll have it. We've got a big backyard. Uh, and then we went about deciding how to pull it down, how to get it to our place and how to put it up. Long story short, uh, we went to a lot of effort. We got a level place cut out, excavated in our place. Uh, Richard, in his goodness, uh, found a whole lot of second-hand pavers and we stacked them and we made them level uh, and we put some timber berries down and we were going to just sit this cubby house then. It was going to be a cubby house. Uh, we decided to sit it on those pavers and put it up. And Rob Mazels, who's not here to verify the truth of my story, Rob did a heaps of work. He came over and with his you know, uber power tools uh, helped us put this thing together. And we are about three-quarters done when we got a letter from the local council. Dear Mrs. Bohr, the house is in Cass's name. (laughs) Dear Mrs. Bohr, we've noticed you're building something and we don't recall getting an application for a permit from you. And after some formal correspondence, uh, one of which was very formal, it had building notice and had references to magistrate's court, after some formal correspondence, we had to pull it down and we had to start again. 
And, you know, it felt really bad. I, I was really annoyed that we had wasted so much time and effort and money. We went to a lot of trouble for that. And it was all for nothing. We literally went back to exactly where we started. Man, I don't ever want to do that again. Like wasting or building another big cubby. It was in vain. But Solomon says in this psalm, it's not always in vain. This building and watching and working, it's not always in vain. But it can be in vain. So when is it in vain? Let's go to those first two verses again. Unless the Lord builds the house, the workers labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards watch in vain. It doesn't have to be in vain. So now I'm building in God's building. I'm watching in God's watching. And when God is doing his part, things have meaning and purpose. And when God is not in it, it is meaningless and empty. It is vanity. So I reckon it makes sense to talk about two things really quickly. We're going to talk about building and establishing, and we're going to talk about guarding or watching, protecting. Now you're going to say, I don't build. Uh, And if you looked at my beautiful soft hands, you would see that I don't build. When am, I, when am I establishing? When am I building? Well, this is not just about your house, your bricks and your mortar. Uh, and I pity anyone who's trying to get a house these days. But when we're at school, we're getting an education. We are establishing a course for our life. We are building. I should do this, this way. Guys, when you go to school, you are building. When you go to university, you have chosen a vocation to train for. You are building. Tali, you are building. So you, Sam. When we choose our first job, we're establishing something of life. We're building. When we work, we get paid, hopefully. We're getting wealth. We are building. When we get married, when we choose where to live, when we have kids, those arrows in the hands of a warrior, when we choose our kids' school, when we choose our friends, when we choose how to spend our money, when we choose how to serve in our church, when we choose how to spend our spare time, All those choices are choices that establish a life. We are, in every single one of those choices, we are building. We are establishing, shaping a life. A life that needs to count for something. In every one of those choices, I am building. And Jesus said, Matthew 7, Jesus says, there's two ways to build. There's a wise way and there's a foolish way. And funnily enough, in that story that Jesus told, he says there were two builders who built a house that both had the same job to do. They both had a life to establish. And one 
built wisely and one built foolishly. And he says, the way you respond to God, the way you deal with what he says, is kind of the difference between a wise builder and a foolish builder. They both build a home. <laughs> it's like the cubby, you know. One builds them on, one builds them on pavers. <laughs> And one builds them on proper foundation. Jesus said one builds on, it's like he's building on sand. And one builds on rock. And the same storm comes. It's not like the guy who built on sand got a mega storm. And the guy who built on rock had no storm. If you're thinking that following Jesus has no storms, I don't think you can point me to a verse about that. They both have the same life difficulties and yet one stands. Hang on, which one was this? This was the one who fell. One falls, crash. And this one stands. And it's the same here. Unless the Lord builds the house, you're building in vain. Now, I can hear you ticking over a question. And your question, I reckon, could be this. If God and I are both building, what's the bit that he's doing? And what's the bit that I'm doing? How are they different? Where does my bit stop? Where does, God bits, where does God's bit start? How do I know where to draw the line and say, I've done my bit? When is it that God is not doing his bit? How do I know whether I'm going about this in vain? They're good questions. And I'm so glad you asked them. But here's a couple of ways that I want you to think about the answer. Because the answers are not directly related to that question. There is kind of some false premise in those questions. So let me suggest to you a couple of things that it's, a couple of things that it's not. First of all, Solomon is not describing a division of labor. He's not saying uh, you have to do some things on life's list and you have to let God do other things on life's list. Let me tell you why I think that that's not the case. I think that's not the case because if it was, then I would be doing some good things that would establish my life and I would get part of the way there. And part way is good start. Uh, but the remainder would be for God to do. And so I would say to God, I've done my bit. Now it's your turn to do your bit. And if you don't do your bit, it's your fault, God, that this flops. Because I did my bit. So this is not talking 50-50. This is not talking uh, unless God is there uh, doing his bit, your bit doesn't count. It's not what it's saying. This is not 60-40. It's not even 99 and 1. I can't even do 1% and say to God, I've gone my part, now you have to go the rest. It's not what it's saying. Because if that was the case, then I would be able to say, rightfully, I have done some good on my own, God. I've done my bit, and it's good. If I could do 50% good, then I would be able to say, I'm halfway there, without God. You can see the problem with that kind of thinking. John 15 says, Jesus said, I'm the branches, Oh, sorry, <laughs> Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches, and without me you can do nothing. Actually, we can't do anything good by ourselves. So we know it's not that. It's not a division of labor. 
It's not like we have to take life's task list, divide it into pieces, regardless of the proportions, and give some to God and keep the rest for yourself. It's not that. It's also not the fact that you just have to apply your efforts differently or better. This is not talking about uh, unless you build to God's design, your efforts are in vain. It's not saying your efforts will be in vain uh, if you start with the wrong design. So start with God's design and then your efforts will count for something. It's not saying that either. Let me tell you why I think that. Because again, if that was the case, all I would have to do is at the very start of my journey, I'd say to God, dear God, please give me the right design and then leave me to my own resources because I'm a pretty good builder. And off I go throughout life, building my life. And as long as I started with the right layout, I'm going to do well. That's me building. That's not God building. All I'm really saying is, God, point me in the direction, I'll get myself there. Not the case. God doesn't give us a list of do's and a list of don'ts at the very start and then just leave you to your own devices. That's not what following Jesus is about. So there's two things that it's not. Let me give you a third thing that I think it's not. It's not do nothing. It's not, dear God, I can't do anything anyway, so I'm going to stay on the couch. Uh, Whatever good you want to see done in the world, uh, you're God, you can do it. It's not that. Why do I think it's not that? Well, because it's not what the Bible teaches about following God. The, the Bible teaches us about uh, obedience. The Bible teaches us about sacrifice. The Bible teaches about, uh, about making wise choices. Uh, the Bible teaching us about being good stewards. Um, none of those things are stay on the couch kind of language. Some people say, let go and let God. And I understand the sentiment behind that. I struggle with that because it sounds like uh, I do nothing and uh, I kind of just, you know, kiss goodbye to any situation, excusing myself of any role uh, in that. And I'd like to see a rock climber who lets go and lets God. I prefer to think of it this way. When you want to think about what does it mean for God to build your house and for you to be building your house at the same time. How about this? Let's go right back to basic concepts. The Bible says when we accept the gospel, when we accept the good news that Jesus died for my sin, I couldn't earn my salvation, so Jesus did it for me. And then it says two things happen. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, comes and lives in me. The Bible also says that I, in this funny, weird way, I am in Christ. So when, when God looks at me, he doesn't see me, he sees Jesus. So God is in me and I'm in Christ. Okay, And if God lives in me and I'm in him, then when I'm building, God's building. And when God's building, I'm building. We're actually not doing two separate things because we're not separate. We're together. We are one. We are actually in each other. And so when I'm at work at the office, he's at work in my office. And when I'm parenting my children, he's there guiding my children. 
We're not saying, you do this bit and I'll do that bit. We're saying, let's together do this. Because I can't do it by myself. And unless I do it for God, it's not worth doing anyway. And we see this concept coming out in Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave, him, gave himself for me. This is not a division of labor. This is not saying uh, the life I now live, I have to do less because God did some. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. So this is not a division of labor. This is not me being properly directed at the very start. And it's not me just doing nothing. This is actually me saying there is no point to this if this is not for God. And by the way, I can't do this by myself. I know that if I try by myself, I will not get all the way. And I know that if I'm not doing this for God, it wasn't worth doing anyway. So let's get practical good friend of mine says this, we're not out to make smarter sinners. So I don't want you to be a smarter sinner, otherwise this sermon might be in vain. What difference does this make when you get up tomorrow morning? How do I know if building my life or the the building that I'm doing in my life is being done for God and by God? I don't know about you, because I don't know all your circumstances, but I'm going to tell you some of the things that have been kind of gnawing away at me. And maybe some of them you'll be able to relate to. Maybe some of them will prompt your mind to say, hmm, that's a little bit like me and whatever it is. First of all, my business. Some of you know I'm involved in a business. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, wow, I'm not sure that I ask God often for help with my clients. With the legal problems that I'm looking to try to resolve. With the decisions that I'm being asked to make. Sorting out issues with my staff. Sometimes I feel like a business, business is business. I'm there for business. I'm not there to be all spiritual. Uh, And I sometimes create this divide and I draw a line down the middle and I say, business, God. And I divide the two. But God is saying, unless I'm building, you're building in vain. And so my tendency is to keep things on my side of the ledger and say, no, I've got this bit, God. This is business. You wouldn't understand. How about this? My tax return. I don't often get a tax return. I usually get a tax bill. Uh, But business has been so lousy lately that I've paid too much tax and I'm getting some back. And there's lots of things that I could do with it. And so I start making a mental list. Who would like to do this? I love love the Golf GTI. Uh, I'd love to do this to the house, I'd love to take the kids to such and such. Um, But when I make my list and then I go back and I ask myself why? Why do I want that? Why would I like this? Why do I want to do that thing? Not because they're fun. Why is it fun? 
Oh, because everyone admires me when I have it. Why do they admire you? Why do you even want to be admired? Come on. If I go digging down and keep asking why, I dredge up these reasons. And the reasons are usually I'm selfish. I want people to like me. I want people to admire me. I want to have something better than the next guy. I feel like I deserve this. None of those are good reasons. My service, playing a bass guitar on a Sunday morning, having a young adult small group in my home, even this very sermon. If I am to do those things my own way, with my own plan, by myself, for my own reasons, then I'm doing them in vain. If I just charge ahead and do it by myself, it's not even likely to count. I can't do God's work by myself. I can't do God's work by myself. I can't even do life properly by myself, let's face it. But I can't sit back and do nothing. So what I have to do is step forward and say, God, is this something that you're asking me to do? Because if it is, wow, I'm going to need your help here. Because I'm about to step off the edge and I hope that you've got something there. My relationships. Some of my relationships are difficult. There's that confrontation that you can see coming and you're dreading it. There's that person that I find really hard to love. There's that friend who desperately needs to understand the gospel and I don't know how to get it through. I'm looking for ways. There's that family member who has hurt so many people. There's so many relationships where if I do it by myself, with my own plan, calling on my own knowledge, actually I need to start with, God, I can't do this. And ironically, it's when I say at the very start, God, I can't do this, and he's like, great. That's a great place to start, Andy. Because now that you've waked to that fact, we can probably do something. So what is it for you? Is it your schoolwork? Ever prayed about a test? Not, you know, oh, help. But have you ever prayed about a test and said, hey, God, I want to do this well. And I can't do this by myself. What about choosing a job? Choosing a spouse? Choosing a way to serve. Choosing how to respond in those relationships that are really hard. If we could do it by ourselves, most of us would, I reckon. And we wouldn't be here. We'd be out there writing self-help books. Reality is we can't do it by ourselves. We need God. And Solomon was kind of onto that way back then. He was like, unless the Lord builds a house, unless God is watching the city, you, your bit that you are trying to do is wasted. You may as well go sit on the couch and watch, you know, Master Chef or whatever floats your boat. Let me quickly talk about guarding. I've lost my last page somewhere. Let me talk about guarding. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. 
So as we discussed before, the watchmen were effectively a way to protect the city. It was protecting those things you've got. And boy, I can relate to this. I know some of you can too. We hold on tightly to what we have, desperately afraid that we might lose it. We worry about going backwards. We worry about our superannuation. We worry about our retirement. We worry about losing a friend. If we bring Jesus into the conversation, they might reject us. We worry about being judged if we say to our classmates or our uni friends that we're Christian. We worry if we commit to something, we'll be stuck with it forever. We worry about losing our spare time if we say yes to a request. We worry about giving our money generously and then not having enough for ourselves. We worry if someone borrows our stuff, it might get broken or lost. And so we keep it for ourselves. We worry a lot. I worry a lot. That's why I have grey hairs. You can't see them from here, but I do. When we worry, when we take it upon ourselves to be our own protectors, it's the same as trying to build your life yourself. God says, hey, that thing that you're trying to protect, that was mine anyway. I gave it to you. I helped you get it. I helped you build it. Let me use it. Don't hold on so tightly and rob yourself of the joy of doing the thing that I've got, you, I've got for you to do. Last question. What if this is all gobbledygook to you? What if you're like, well, not really got in God to build my house, build my life, not convinced that God's a thing that I'm into just yet. If that's you, this psalm has a message for you too. And the message is in those two verses. Unless God builds your life, unless God is building your house, Your efforts are in vain. Your efforts are wasted. You will, if you stay on that course, get to the end of life and go, oh, wasted, empty, meaningless, rubbish. You get a choice. Each of us gets a choice to choose whether or not we do it with God or we do it by ourselves. And Solomon is kind of whispering a piece of advice in your ear about as effectively as clubbing you over the head. He's saying, do not waste it unless you do it with God. It is wasted. Don't try to hang on to the things you've got yourself. Don't try to build it yourself. Your grand life plan counts for zero unless it was done hand in glove with God. If you have never ever contemplated life with God, him in you, you in him, if that's a concept that you just get weirded out by and say, I've never thought about that. That is crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. But it's what God designed. It is what gives life meaning. I'm going to leave it there and say to you, if that's you, please 
don't ignore that question. Don't put it off. Don't kick it down the road. Don't dismiss it. Religious mumbo-jumbo. It is actually what life is about. I'm going to throw it to the musos for a last song. <laughs>